Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. We are talking about Matthew 15 to 17 and Mark 7 to 9. You know, I felt really happy when I read these chapters, and at least I really noticed it. I I have felt so much enjoyment in reading about Christ's ministry on the earth. It's such a privilege and pleasure to read his words as recounted by these gospel authors and to see the interaction. Obviously, it's a sketchy record. Obviously, it's it's a brief recounting of an amazing life. But it's wonderful. It's wonderful, and I, I really enjoy it. I hope you are enjoying this as I am. Now, I want to uh, throw another verse in here that we will talk about later, and I promise we'll talk about it more when we get to Matthew 23. But I want to jump ahead with the verse from Matthew 23. It's verse 24 that says, Ye blind guides, this is Christ telling off the Pharisees again, Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. That is such a great phrase. And as I said, we'll talk more about it when we get to Matthew 23. But think about what that means. You strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. In other words, the priorities are way off and the sensitivities are way off. Where the Pharisees would have a bone to pick with Christ about some small observance that they had added to the law. It was not that Christ was breaking the law. Christ doesn't break laws. He was emphasizing the correct hierarchy of importance of laws, and they were taking traditions that had built up around the Mosaic Law and making such a big deal about that and complaining or condemning Christ and his disciples because they were breaking some of these traditions, and and yet they would swallow a camel, meaning that they would put up with their own behavior being really hypocritical or breaking a larger law. The specific example that Christ gives here or that he calls out in the Pharisees is that they are complaining about the fact that his disciples do not do the ritual hand washing before they eat. And this is what they say, Matthew 15, right here, verse 2, why do thy disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. And then he says in verse 3, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. In other words, no consequence or no sin involved. And so he says, you've, you've basically undone the commandment of God by this foolish tradition. So we have to explain a little bit what was going on here. So I'm going to read from Elder Bruce R. McConkie's Doctrinal New Testament commentary on these verses. And actually, he is quoting directly from Mark 7. So these two gospel authors, by the way, Matthew, for these chapters 15 and 17, are very closely aligned with Mark 7 through 9. And you'll see that as you read the curriculum for this week, that they are telling the same stories. And there are just a few details that are different that can give us a little bit of insight. But anyway, in Mark chapter 7, which is very parallel to Matthew 15, they use a different word in the in the recounting of Mark. Verse 11, if a man say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift by whatsoever there might be profited by me, he shall be free. Okay, so let's read what Elder McConkie says about this. 
So he says that, of course, we know the commandment that was given to Israel to honor thy father and thy mother, which included caring for their temporal needs, especially in their old age. Now, I do want to say something. We've talked about this a few different times and probably will again in the future. That doesn't mean that we need to be putting ourselves in harm's way if our family of origin is toxic or critical or, you know, really harmful in some way. And some people get kind of twisted into knots because they think, well, I need to honor my father and my mother, even if they are very harmful or destructive of me or my spouse or my children. And that's not what is indicated here. God does want us to acknowledge that we were given life by an earthly mother and father or adopted mothers and fathers, and that this is something to be grateful for, and that we do have enough acknowledgement of that indebtedure that we would not let them basically die in a gutter. That if our parents were starving to death in their old age, we would take care of them because they are our parents and they gave us life. Now, that's not the same as making ourselves consistently vulnerable, like some of the families that I talk to where it's like they have to go over to Sunday dinner every time or they do every holiday with them, even though they're mistreated or treated poorly or, or as I said, family members are treated poorly. So you see the difference? We're not talking about making yourself available for abusive behavior. We are talking about a basic honoring of our fathers and mothers because they did give us life or brought us up to maturity and we do want to take care of them in their old age if that's necessary or at any time that there's an extreme need that we wouldn't just abandon them. Okay, so that kind of clarification in place. Elder McConkie says, according to the rabbinical teachings, a wealthy son could say to destitute parents, it is Corban, and thus be free of his obligation to support them. Even a wealthy son with destitute parents was off the hook according to these rabbinical teachings and traditions that had risen up around the law. So going on, Elder McConkie says, originally, this had meant, in effect, my property is korban or has been pledged or given to God. So that's what korban referred to, that this property of the son was going to be donated to the church donated to God or for the poor or whatever. And so, therefore, it cannot be used to support you in your poverty. And again, that's something that the rabbis came up with. It was not a part of the original law. Moses did not say, honor your father or mother, unless you want to donate all your property to the church or, you know, to the poor, and then you don't have any responsibility. That is not a part of the law of Moses. But the rabbis had when we talked about building that Talmud or the law, the fence around the Torah, this was part of that, where they would examine these laws and then create sort of these traditions around it. And some of them really ended up changing the commandment or making it of none effect, as Christ said. So what is he saying here? Let's go on. Thus, the selfish son could continue to use his property as long as he lived. So by saying he was going to donate it to the church at his death, that removed from him the obligation to take care of his parents who might have been destitute or in real need of help. But by Christ's day, the practice and teaching was so corrupt that Corban meant merely to take a vow. And so by saying it is Corban, the son meant, I have vowed not to support you. And so he was free of the command to honor his parents. For according to the tradition of the elders, it was more important to keep his vow then obey God and honor his parents. So that is an enormous distortion of the law. And maybe that helps us to understand 
more clearly why Christ was very outspoken about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, because they had twisted the laws. They had changed the meanings of things and added these different you know, exemptions or these layers that then even got more distorted over time to the point where they could say, well, see, I'm being very righteous and I'm not really going to take care of my obligations as stated in the law of Moses. But, whoa, I'm in good standing with the Pharisees. I'm in good standing in, in the public sphere because I have now used this twisted understanding. That is such an important point for us to be aware of. It's so easy for us to to miss the mark. You know, remember in the Book of Mormon where Jacob talks about looking beyond the mark, other places where we realize that that the Lord is warning us to not get lost in the, in the trees, so to speak, or, or to shift the meaning of things and, and to lose the sense of what God is trying to teach us or what he has established as the covenant path so that we can move forward and become more like him. And it's really that same thing I've mentioned before. Never underestimate the human capacity to screw stuff up. You know, we can take the best, most inspired laws, the best commandments, the best spiritual guides, and we can distort them in order to serve our natural man or to get ourselves supposedly off the hook. You know, now now I have an excuse for not being obedient or complying with this commandment. So this is what McConkie refers to earlier in this commentary, but in this same section, as transforming truth into traditions. Now, I really love that phrase, transforming truth into traditions. Think of what he's saying here. We take these true teachings from the prophets, from God himself, and we make a tradition around it. We start to do things a certain way, and then the tradition takes on a power and a life of its own. And in order to observe the tradition, we we lose the meaning of the law from which sprang the tradition in the first place. This is something that is not unique to this time period. The ancient Israelites, prior to the coming of Christ, this happens throughout the history of the world. Again, don't underestimate the power of human beings to screw stuff up. In fact, what Elder McConkie talks about here in this section is that this is what took place not only in Christ's time, but in the early Christian era. And that was the time of the great apostasy, right? And he said that, you know, they took the pure and simple doctrines of Christ, and then they added things or or created, you know, different ways to interpret that in ways that really distorted the intention of the law. And as we know, if we've studied at all the Protestant Reformation, this was the complaint of the Protestant reformers. You know, Calvin and and Zwigli and Martin Luther and so many others, Wick and anyway, I should have made a list, but there are so many of those Protestant reformers that often gave their lives for pointing out that these traditions that had arisen out of the commandments were total distortions of what the Bible taught. There's a wonderful history there. Forgive me, I'm going off here for a minute. But one of the things that you can see was such a gift to the planet was Gutenberg's printing press. Prior to that time, Bibles were only able to be created by handwriting. 
So it was only the very educated, the monks basically, who could write down another Bible and copy from one handwritten text to another handwritten text. And maybe you've seen some of those manuscripts if you've traveled in Europe, and they're amazing because they often did these illuminated manuscripts where they put gold leaf in around the first letters of the chapter or whatever. Anyway, beautiful illustrations and so on that were very meticulously done and took, of course, almost a lifetime to create. So that was the only way to have a Bible, was if it was handwritten by somebody who could already read and write. So there were very few available, and of course the masses of people could not read them anyway. But once the printing press was invented, and then we have those famous Gutenberg Bibles that were the first books printed by that press, it now became possible to mass produce the books. And if books were going to be more available, more people learned how to read. And then those people could go back and say, like, wait a minute, this is what the Bible says. Prior to that, all they had was the interpretation of the priests and of the monks and of the people who could read. And there were few in number and power corrupts, as we know. So look at some of those early Christian apostasy, things that were complained about by the Protestant reformers, like the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther was one who really, really was upset about that, as Anyone should have been. The selling of indulgences meant that you could supposedly be free of any consequence of a past sin. And even you could be authorized to commit a future sin by the payment of monies to the church. That was the indulgence. So, you know, I want to go kill my brother so I can get his property. How much is it going to cost me? And the priest would agree with the guy on a certain price, and he would pay that indulgence and then go off and commit the crime, and nobody would come after him or excommunicate him or anything else because the church had been enriched. Or it could be a past crime, as, again, as I said. So anyway, that, that was it was so awful that we we take, you know, parts of the scripture and somehow come up with that, Right. And then certainly repeated and perfunctory confessions, like you can just go and say you're sorry every week and say a few prescribed prayers, and then you're forgiven instead of having to really repent and change the praying to Mary as an advocate. We talked about that recently. Or other so-called saints, rather than to the Lord himself, worshiping images, turning the sacramental emblems of bread and wine into the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, which is called transubstantiation. You may know that term, but that's what they consider in the Catholic Church to be the case, that when you eat the wafer and drink the wine, that you are actually eating the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. That's not true. These were emblems. These are these are symbols of his flesh and blood. Anyway, there were all kinds of different apostate ideas that came through that early Christian era where they took truth and transformed it into traditions. So again, that wonderful phrase, hold on to that thought. We are going to come back to that later in the podcast. Now, this was kind of a hard podcast for me to try to prepare because I really, as I said, I really enjoyed these chapters. I have been enjoying the entire New Testament, but I don't know, for some reason, I just really noticed this time how much I'm loving reading about the life of Christ and reading his words as recorded by these great gospel authors. And I'd love to talk about every part of them, and I'm not going to. <laughs> they're pretty self-explanatory stories. And as I said, they're mostly the same stories in Matthew in these chapters as they are in Mark. So I hope you enjoy comparing and contrasting the different authors and seeing some of the distinct 
details that are put in there, but I'm not going to talk about a lot of them. I'm going to touch lightly on a few, but please read through these chapters. They're so great. Again, of course, Christ continues or concludes this, this particular complaint that he has against the Pharisees of being hypocrites. Again, he in verse 7 of Matthew 15 says, Ye hypocrites, well did I say it, prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, I'm thinking you're going to recognize that verse, because this is the verse <clears throat> excuse me, that Joseph Smith recounts from the first vision, from his first vision, that he is given by Jesus Christ, who tells them that all the churches are wrong. Because, of course, Joseph Smith was praying about which church he should join. And Christ says, none of them are correct. They're not my church because of this. They draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, this is such a great description of what human beings are capable of. We have great capacity to be hypocrites. And we should be on guard for that. Not, again, this is not about becoming obsessive, compulsive about it, or, you know, being terribly anxious about it. We just need to be honest with ourselves. We need to not rationalize or cover our sins and not think that we are doing what's right when we are twisting things and we are giving ourselves credit for doing this good work while we're excusing ourselves from doing this sin on the side or ultimately not treating people well or, you know, twisting things to our convenience. Uh, again, in the next verse, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We have a repetition of a verse we've talked about before. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth. This defileth a man. Again, this is repeated in Mark. I think it's interesting here that in the next verse, the disciples come to Christ and say, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this say? <laughs> which I think is pretty pretty hilarious, you know, that these disciples are like, you know, you're really calling these guys out. You know, do you, you realize they're getting pretty upset. And in fact, ironically, it wasn't just the Pharisees. I think Mark mentions that the warning includes the Sadducees, if I'm remembering correctly. But the point is that they are noticing that the enemies are combining. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were enemies themselves. They had big doctrinal distinctions and different uh, approaches to things. Remember, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection and other things that were fairly fairly big issues. So here the warning of the disciples, you realize these guys are getting offended. And in fact, this is often the case, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes all counseled together to try to destroy Christ because these enemies became complicit with each other as they saw a great threat in Christ actually cutting through all these false traditions that they had perpetrated on the people and teaching the plain truth. And obviously speaking, as it said previously in, in this record, with authority and not as the scribes. What he said was true and had the clear resonance and consistency and harmony of truth, as opposed to all these traditions that had been used as power over the people. So... Anyway, the disciples notice that his enemies are coming together. And he says, look, if the father hasn't planted the plant, it'll be rooted up and let the blind lead the blind. They'll both fall in the ditch. That comes after this, whatever. And then he talks again about this point. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. That's Matthew 15, verse 18. And that's 
see where he takes this a little further. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So again, he's making this point. What are we really looking at here? We're going to get upset or bent out of shape because we're not doing the ritual, traditional washings that the rabbis came up with that are not essential to the law of Moses. And instead, we're going to not worry about the things that come out of our mouths that represent what's in our heart, because evil comes out of the heart and the mind and through the mouth. So I just wanted to mention this in conjunction with that verse, because I think this is really important. Pornography is at the root of so much trouble in our world. Now, there are many ways that the evil one comes after us and comes after our children. But this is a plague of our times, and it has become more and more extreme. There are kind of frightening statistics about how many people are affected by this. We know that it's not just men. Women are actually closing that gap to some extent. It might be a little bit of a different style because women kind of go for the relational stuff. I mean, the really sleazy romance novels or chat rooms and things like that because they like the the kind of the framework of a relationship around the inappropriate sex. But sometimes it's just more visual with, with men, but we're closing this gap anyway. I mean, I don't want to split hairs. The point is with the internet as it is and increasing shows and channels that are, you know, focused on younger and younger audiences, that this has become just a frightening situation. And again, this isn't about stoking anxiety or making us obsessive or compulsive about our fears. That never solved any problem. What we want to do, though, is to be thoughtful and intentional about utilizing resources. First of all, we have to talk to our children and or our spouse. I guess I should say, first of all, is to examine ourselves and see if we're making exceptions for ourselves in pornographic areas. Are we too loose about what we read or what we view or what we listen to? We need to be careful. It creeps into all those things. And it is not that which goeth into a man that defileth him, but that which cometh out. Meaning it's not what we eat, it's what we think about. It's what we think about that then impacts our behavior in so many specific ways. I'm just going to mention a couple of other, I think, fascinating things here. I thought about recounting some of the statistics, but everybody has different numbers and they're all horrifying. But they do say that our kids at younger and younger ages are being exposed. So we need to talk about it. And many of the young people report that their parents don't talk with them about pornography or other media. So please talk to your children about these things. There are lots of warnings from the prophets that we can talk about without being, you know, coming on too heavy or, or being too negative with our kids. We want always there to be a message of hope, which is that Christ is the Savior and he can help us to overcome. These things are highly addictive and it can take the utilization of good resources, but the church has put good resources together. You know that the Addiction Recovery Program Manual is online. It's on the church's website. You can go over that as an individual, as a family, as a couple. It's great information for all of us about how to change from from self-destructive habits to better ones, but it certainly has terrific application to any addiction, including pornography. So are we taking advantage of those resources, making them available to our children? Are we careful about the internet in our homes? 
I'm saddened to hear of how many families still allow devices in the children's bedrooms. I realize that logistically it's hard sometimes and certainly the kids push back, but these are steps that should be looked at and hopefully taken to protect our children. All devices should be recharged in the parents' rooms at night and not just accessible to our kids at night. Even like the innocent kids are not going to be in control of what they get. So check your children's phones. Do you have their passwords? I'm, again, very saddened when I hear of parents who say that they don't want to impose or or violate the privacy of their children. I'm like, wait a minute, how can you protect them if you don't know what's going on? Children, for this reason, are not legally entitled to privacy because their parents are responsible for their safety and their well-being. So please... Read good articles. There's great information online. I mean, yes, (laughs) internet can be the source of a lot of bad things, but it can be the source of a lot of good things. And there are great resources online to help us be most educated and up-to-date on the ways to protect our families and our children and ourselves. Pornography has become so rampant and intense that the objectification is increasing. And the sacred body that God has given us and the processes that the body is involved in and its functions are taken by the adversary and treated with the most heinous disrespect and objectification, as I said. In fact, I've listened to a woman named, I believe she's a a PhD. I would have to check that to be sure. Her name is Genevieve Gluck. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. G-L-U-C-K. She's probably not somebody that I would agree with on a lot of issues because she's a very ardent feminist. And there are some areas there with abortion and so on where I'm sure I would disagree with her. Nevertheless, she has really looked into the whole kind of societal craze of transgenderism. And this is definitely a social contagion that is affecting a lot of our children. And what she has found is that this is so much an outgrowth of pornography. Because as we know, when an appetite is fed, the appetite increases. So it takes more and more of whatever that substance is to give us a buzz, to give the consumer a buzz. So, you know, it's one kind of sex is too tame after a while, and then it's got to be something more taboo, and then more taboo, and more taboo, and thus the growth of more and more fetishism that is involved in pornography and transgenderism in her studies is an outgrowth of a, of a fetish, and that this is ultimately seeking to remove all taboos because you need to go through greater and greater barriers in order to get that buzz. And this kind of last taboo is the sexualization of children. Most societies, any civilized society, protects their young, and we are losing our desire to protect our young as a society because they're trying to remove the onus of pedophilia. Maybe you have seen this in the news, but there are more and more, I hate to use this word, but quote unquote educators or intellectuals or college professors who want to change the word pedophilia because it has a bad stigma, as it should, to minor attracted persons. Instead of a pedophile, they they are calling these people minor attracted persons to try to diminish the the problem with it. It's just, it's not pedophilia. It's not a crime. It's just they happen to be attracted to minors. Well, yeah, that is a taboo. That is pedophilia. 
And yet they're trying to break through it by changing the language. It always starts with the language, right? And and it really leads to them trying to take that last taboo out and involve more and more of the sexualization of children. If they can, by the way, if a young child, and they are saying children as young as five, six, whatever, can determine that they want to change their genders, then why couldn't they consent to sex? If they can make that decision. So you see how it comes from one idea to the next, and it just keeps eroding these barriers that protect our children. And of course, the whole drag queen story hour and whatever focused on children and bringing them more and more exposure to sexually provocative clothing or actions or whatever. These last taboos are being eroded in our society. And many people are trying to call that, you know, healthy and free and protecting of a minority. So be on your guard. And it all starts with pornography, brothers and sisters. Let's let's be very careful. Don't freak out that your children have been exposed. It may be impossible to grow up in this country without some exposure to those things. And of course, they're on billboards and even in commercials where you're unsuspecting, or if you go to the mall or the beach, you're going to see live porn, basically. But if we can talk to our children, utilize resources, and keep keep telling our children that like these things lead to more and more self-destructive and dangerous behaviors. So let's let's address it with hope and with courage and with good resources. The Lord will be on our side. He will help us. We do not have to succumb. And keeping it a secret is so dangerous because we can't get help if we don't acknowledge that there's a problem. There are people we can talk to. If you don't feel comfortable with a mom and dad, go to a priesthood leader, go to a Relief Society sister or residency member. Anyway, get help. There are plenty of people who can help. Lots of resources in our world to address these things. And I'm really grateful that there are organizations like that. I haven't looked on this website for a while, but Fight the New Drug has been a good one in the past. I hope they're still really good. I know some of my kids were impressed by a book written by Terry Crews, who is an actor who I guess was involved with a pornography addiction to a great extent and saw that it was really damaging him and his relationships. I don't think he's taking it from a Christian approach. I don't know if he mentions religion. He's not a member of our church, of course. But anyway, he wrote a book, and I don't remember the title, so forgive me, but I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to find. And these things can be really encouraging as we see other people recognizing that these are problems and taking the steps and showing forth the effort and the courage to overcome it so that it doesn't lead to those things which ultimately can destroy us. Okay, I'm. this is going much longer than I thought it would <laughs> as I get carried away. There's the story of the woman of Canaan that in Mark 7 is identified as Greek, specifically, who comes to Christ and wants her daughter to be healed of a possession of a devil. And this, I think, is such a sweet story because Christ tells her that he has come only to the house of Israel. And he says this in a pretty stark way. After saying that I've come only into the lost sheep of the house of Israel, she comes still and worships and asks him to help her. And he says, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, think how easy it would have been for her to be offended. The Savior of the world, and she believes in him. The Savior of the world is calling you and your people dogs. They're not like the children. The children get the the bread, but not the dogs. And she says with great humility and a willingness to submit to the timetable of the Lord. Think about how important that is. A willingness to submit to the timetable of the Lord. She says, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. 
And Christ says, O great is thy faith, be unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. It's a beautiful story of a faith that isn't often seen even in Israel, as Christ sometimes says. So that's a tender story. And I just want to encourage us all to have that humility to accept the word of the Lord and not not push against it or push back or resist or reject or rebel against it. So many people are thinking they know better than the prophets. And if the timetable of the Lord is not what they want, they can lose their way completely. I'm going to skip some of the stories of healings and so on. I'm just going to mention briefly the feeding of the 4,000 this time. And these, of course, are counts of men. There are also women and children in these big congregations. And Christ feeds them. And then the reason that I want to mention that is that both Mark and Matthew then mention this conversation that Christ has with the apostles, where he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the apostles think, well, he must be talking about us not having brought bread. (laughs) It's like, how do you not get this? How do you not understand that that's not what I'm talking about? So how does he say this? This is chapter 16 of Matthew. And again, it's in Mark 8 and 9, I believe, that he talks about this. And he says, Oh, ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand? Neither remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets he took up and the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake not to you concerning bread that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? And then understood they how that he bade them not to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Christ sometimes does sound kind of, you know, impatient with the disciples, and we know he was not impatient. Nevertheless, he is asking them to step up. He is telling them, you need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Seek understanding. Don't just look at the surface, but see what the principle is. What is the principle involved? And this is really important for us and when we're teaching our children to not just go on the surface and say, oh, well, what's the rule? Okay, I'll try to follow the rule. But what is the purpose of it? And I remember with my own children, sometimes they they almost wanted an extra rule. Like, how long can you be out of that favorite chair in the family room? (laughs) You know, if you get up to go to the bathroom or go up to get a drink or something, and then you come back and somebody else wants to be in the chair and they're, they're like, well, wait a minute, I just got up to get a drink and now somebody else wants to have that place or whatever. And they would want a rule about it. And I would say like, no, what's the principle? How are you treating each other? How do you want to be treated? You know, the classic golden rule. How would you feel if you had just gotten up to get a drink and a sibling had come to take the chair that you were in? Like, are you treating each other kindly? Are you showing respect? There are not too many principles and they cover a whole territory, a large territory. Like, are you telling the truth? Are you dealing honorably? Are you being kind? It's amazing how far you can go with some basic principles. And that's what we're talking about here. And that's what Christ is talking about too. Don't get caught up in a bunch of legislation or trying to create these these different rules or traditions or whatever. Like, get to the principle. What's the principle? What am I talking about here really? And I think it's good to talk with our children about this, that you see how he expects his disciples to understand. And that's what he says in the Mark 8 version Verse 21, how is it that ye do not understand? Like he expects them to seek understanding. Try to think about what the principle involved really is. I think that's so important. 
and we don't get caught up in the in the superficial, then I'm skipping lots of good stuff, but he does, this is very important, and it comes very shortly after that in Matthew 16, when he asks his, again, his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And Peter answers and says, well, some say this, some say this, some say this. And he says, okay, but whom say ye that I am? And let's read this from chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered in verse 17 and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee in verse 18, that thou art Peter. Now here's a word play because Peter is from the Latin root piedra and it means rock. And so here thou art Peter, whose name is the rock. And incidentally, it is upon this rock, but not the rock of Peter, the rock of revelation that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because it is continuing revelation, right? It's a, it's a continuous restoration where God can guide his church. And then he says in verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those are sealing keys, essential to the leadership of the church. It is one of the things that makes it God's church, is that those keys exist, and they are given to priesthood brethren in the right positions in order to act in God's name with authority. Now, this has been the cause of trouble in the entire history of the Catholic Church. And why is that? Because they take it as interpreting this to mean that Christ was founding his church on Peter. And in the Catholic tradition, Peter becomes the first pope. If you look up the history of the papacy, Peter's number one. And then they claim their authority through Peter. Christ gave it to Peter. Peter's our first pope. So he passed it on to the second pope and the third and the fourth and the fifth, all the way down to the current day pope. And that would be their claim to authority through Peter from Christ right here in Matthew 16. But that is a misinterpretation. He is not building his church on Peter. It is not built on one person. I mean, remember, God could replace these early apostles. He could restore the gospel. Joseph Smith becomes the prophet of the restoration and Joseph Smith is replaced once his testimony is sealed with his blood. God moves on. It is not on an individual that God rests the kingdom, other than, of course, the Savior of the world, who is the absolute founder of and finisher of our faith. But this, this is not a mortal person on whom the church rests. So the Catholics have taken this verse and gone way abroad. Now, interestingly, if you have visited Catholic cathedrals, again, I've been to a lot of cathedrals in Europe, and, and I know many of you have as well, or in Latin America, Often, when they're in the statues that are outside the church or inside the church, if they're depicting the apostles, they each tend to have this little sign or something that shows that it's, you know, who it is. And Peter is generally shown holding keys. And again, that comes from this verse, because Christ said he would give him the sealing keys. So he's often holding keys. Now, there's a fun story, and probably you remember this, or Maybe you've heard it. It's when President Kimball was visiting Denmark, and he went to the chapel where the famous sculptor Thorvaldsen, who is the sculptor that did the Christus that we have a replica of in the visitor center in Salt Lake City, you know, the Christ with his arms outstretched. We see it often depicted. Beautiful, beautiful statue. That same sculptor, Thorvaldsen, 
in this Denmark cathedral had sculpted each of the 12 apostles of Christ's church during his earthly ministry. And as they stood in front of the statue of Peter, who was shown holding keys in the statue, President Kimball turned to the Danish mission president, President Benthen, and declared, I want you to tell every prelate, that's a priest, right? A prelate in Denmark, that they do not hold the keys. I hold the keys. That's a powerful story. President Kimball's sweet, wonderful man that he was, knew that those keys are held by the president of Christ's restored church and no one else. They are given always by the laying on of hands to those who are called to hold the keys next. And we'll talk about that more here in a moment with the Mount of Transfiguration. And boy, do we have to move on because (laughs) I'm talking about too much of these wonderful chapters. I do want to mention this in chapter 16, verse 21, Christ is prophesying to his apostles. And this is not the first time, but this is another place where he speaks more clearly about his death and resurrection to come. And Peter, who loves the Lord and is a little bit spontaneous and impulsive, says, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And Christ turns and says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Wow, high-level stuff. And again, he expects a lot of these apostles because the keys will rest with them after Christ's death and resurrection, and they will carry on the work of the ministry on their own, without him. So he wants them to step up. He wants Peter to step up. And his point here is, what are the things of men? Life. Life is a concern of people on this planet. And they get too caught up in it instead of the things of eternity, which are the things that matter. So why are we putting forth, why are we so afraid of losing our lives rather than losing our souls? Again, we've seen this very recently with the COVID pandemic. How afraid People became of losing their lives. I am not suggesting, please don't misunderstand me, that we should take, you know, carelessly the concerns over life and death. I mean, we are stewards over our own health and well-being to the extent that we have a chance to impact that. But we must not be so afraid of death. Christ has already conquered the bands of death. We will rise again, and there will not be a hair of our heads that is lost So while we should show appropriate precautions or take care and take care of our children, of course, and their safety, that is not the most important thing. Again, there's a hierarchy of importance. There's a hierarchy of priority. And that's what Christ is telling Peter. Don't go there because this is what I came to do. I came to die. I came to be the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb without spot who could offer himself to save his people from their sins if they would repent, and from death for all mankind. So he's just saying there is a hierarchy. Don't get caught up in the temporal. It's not about the temporal. It's never ultimately about the temporal, if we see right. And then this very important verse, these two verses that come, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. We could talk about that for a while, but I think we pretty much know what he's talking about here. And in verse 26, this famous verse, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Certainly a question worth asking ourselves regularly. Are we putting our 
our emphases in the right place? Are we concerned about eternal things? Not terrified, not anxious, not afraid, but concerned. Are we paying attention? Are our eyes single to Christ so that everything else finds its right place and takes its appropriate position of importance and we don't get that hierarchy all messed up because we put the wrong things first? So easy to get caught up in the world and Christ warns against it again and again. Okay, chapter 17 in Matthew and Mark 9, we have a fairly brief record about the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens there with Peter, James, and John going up the Mount with Christ and being transfigured and seeing the coming of Moses and Elijah to transfer keys. So there are a lot of things we could say about this event, but let's just say a few. Notice that it's Peter, James, and John again, because they constituted the first presidency. Those were the leaders of the church as the first presidency when Christ's death and resurrection have happened. They were with him for special events because Christ was preparing them, and he did expect a lot of them and was giving them that opportunity to grow and become and understand more clearly. So they were there when he raised Jairus' daughter, and they were the only apostles that were with him when he brings that young woman back to life. They are going to be with him outside the Garden of Gethsemane when he goes in and sweats these great drops of blood as he takes upon himself the beginning of the atoning suffering. They are the ones who will come to Joseph Smith in the latter day and to Oliver Cowdery together to confer the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood and to transfer them because they were the last earthly holders of that in the organized church designated to transfer them to the new dispensation. We have, as I said, Moses is there, Elijah. Now why they are transferring keys, as we said, and we've talked about this in Old Testament times, but let's just review that Moses and Elijah were both translated rather than experiencing death. And that matters because they, if they had died, they would have existed as spirits in the spirit world. But how do we transfer keys in this church? By the laying on of hands, mortal hands of flesh. And if they had been in the spirit world, they would not have had hands, tangible hands of flesh. So by being translated, the Lord who thinks of every jot and tittle, I mean, again, why do we ever think we know more than God who can organize this, you know, every detail to perfection, had them translated. Elijah is taken up in a fiery chariot as witnessed by other people. And Moses goes off into the desert. And we are told by uh, Latter-day prophets that he also did not taste of death. And because the legend went that no man knew where Moses was buried. Well, because he wasn't buried. He did not taste of mortal death. So He had his body. As a translated person, Moses had his body. Elijah had his body. And why could they not have had a resurrected body? Well, because the resurrection had not begun yet. Remember who is the first fruits of the resurrection? Christ. The bands of death had not been broken prior to Christ's own death and then his own resurrection. So he was the first one to be resurrected. So Moses and Elijah could not have been resurrected at this point because Christ was still on earth. So they had translated bodies. They come to the Mount of Transfiguration. In the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith tells us that Peter, James, and John were also transfigured there in order to be able to withstand the glory that they were experiencing. So it was Christ and those three men that are transfigured that are able to experience the glory of these creatures from 
another world that come to transfer these keys, and the presence of God the Father is also there. And they hear his voice. They do not see him, but they hear his voice confirming the divine sonship of Jesus Christ and owning him as his beloved son. We also have from a Latter-day prophet, Joseph Fielding Smith, the writings that at this time, Peter, James, and John would have received their own endowments. Again, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is part of the process of covenant making so that they could have their own journey continue spiritually by receiving the endowment covenants. And then, yes, as I said, the Father's voice owns Christ again, my beloved Son. So pretty important and significant event that we have just a few verses on here, but there's a lot said about that in Latter-day teachings. Christ talks about faith in a beautiful way. Again, he's encouraging these men with whom he spends so much time and is preparing them for what is to come. And we hear this uh, famous verse here in verse 20 of chapter 17. Or when they're talking about why they couldn't cast out a certain devil. And he says, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. So beautiful. And I'm sure you've heard by now that a mustard seed is the tiniest of all seeds. <laughs> you can hardly tell, but you know, which one ends. It's kind of like a powder. But he's saying you don't need much faith. You just need to tap into the power of God with that faith. Now, I have to say a couple of things about faith because this is such a journey for us. We start with whatever faith we have, and God can help us magnify that faith as we go through life's journeys. And of course, we also have that beautiful statement here in, I believe it's in Mark. Let me find it. Yes, it's in Mark chapter 9, and this is the father of the person that is possessed of these evil spirits. And Christ says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And that is the pattern, brothers and sisters. Christ will help our unbelief if we turn to him with a desire to increase our faith. And we have to have the desire because God granteth unto men according to their desires. He will not give us something we're not asking for. Because it is our choice, our agency that that allows those great gifts to be given if we seek them. And we are constantly admonished to ask, seek, and knock. So how beautiful that this father shows this great pattern in saying, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. I hope we can each go to God in that same way. Faith begins like the grain of a mustard seed, but eventually faith is the power by which the worlds are created, by which all the miracles of God are done. Our prophet, President Nelson, has been telling us that we will see greater miracles than the world has ever seen prior to this time. As I have reminded us all the time that we don't need miracles unless, you know, Pharaoh's army is breathing down our necks. So what the prophet is telling us is that there are going to be the troubles prophesied from time immemorial In these latter days, we are going to have problems and troubles and persecutions, but faith is sufficient to create the miracle, and faith precedes the miracle. If we can go to the Lord and say, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief, instead of, well, or as President 
Uchtdorf used to put it, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. And instead of encouraging the doubts, let us encourage the faith and come to the Lord and petition him to help build our faith. Now, this sounds so repetitive sometimes, but it's so important that we think about this, that faith truly is believing what we cannot see, but that is true. So you can only have faith in things that are true, and what God tells us is true. There is a veil, a veil of forgetfulness, and we cannot pierce it just because we want to. It is faith that ultimately pierces the veil. And remember that, it's not death that pierces the veil. Or everybody who had a near-death experience would come back and join the church. But I believe that it's it's faith, as we see with the brother of Jared in the book of Ether. It is his faith that is so great he cannot be kept, you know, from within the veil anymore. So as we grow our faith, the veil thins. That is quite the journey, and we should be about that business of believing even the things we cannot see because of the veil that are true or because we can't see the future. And I I find that we're so often tempted, rather than stretching our faith, to try to squint into the darkness. You know, it's like we're peering into the darkness, hoping to see through that veil or see into the future. You know, how are you going to answer this problem, Lord? How are you going to solve this problem? How are you going to alleviate this pain? So we kind of squint hard and we peer into the darkness because we really want to see. And what the Lord is saying, I need you to choose belief even when you cannot see. And it is a choice, choosing to believe that God will keep his promises for us individually and collectively. There's a nice statement that Boyd K. Packer quoted of Mary G. Romney's counsel to himself, Elder Packer, saying that sometimes the Lord asks us to walk at the edge of the light and even a few steps into the darkness. Well, that's faith, walking at the edge of the light, but a few steps into the darkness and continuing to believe. Another beautiful description of faith, I think, is in the hymn, Lead Kindly Light. This was actually written by a Catholic cardinal, John Henry Newman, who was having a crisis of faith himself, and he wrote the words to this beautiful hymn. Maybe you remember partway through the first verse, it says, Keep thou my feet, speaking as a, as a mortal to the immortal one, to God. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. See, that person has stopped squinting into the darkness. That person is not trying to pierce the veil by looking really, really close. That person is allowing the Lord to know what is to come. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. Those words are so beautiful. They are words of faith. Keep thou my feet. Like I pedal, you steer, Lord. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could become more Zion-like and we could choose to allow the Lord to keep our feet and not to ask to see the future, not to ask to see the distant scene, but to trust that God will keep his promises in the due time of the Lord. Again, keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. The next verse begins, I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I loved to choose and see my path, but now 
lead thou me on. Isn't that beautiful? Because we can all identify with that. It takes a lot of growth to get to the point where we ask the Lord to keep our feet and that we submit to the veil and we submit to not knowing the future and we trust the Lord to keep our feet. If we have chosen this path, that he will open up step by step the way that we should go and he will not let us falter because we have chosen him. Now we stumble, we fall, we're imperfect, but he doesn't lose us if we have chosen him and that choice continues in our lives. Okay, beautiful hymns. There are so many fun stories in here, and I did touch on more of them than I thought, but let's go back to that original idea. Well, not the original, but the one that I mentioned about truth becoming tradition. Truth becoming tradition. This is dangerous stuff, brothers and sisters, but we are notorious for this as human beings. We we like to pin down things and, and have a you know, a strict understanding of how this looks. And that's basically what the rabbis were doing at this time. They were like, oh, what does it look like? And how can we, like, you know, exactly describe what obedience to this law looks like? But it really twisted them into knots and they got way off course because they were focusing way past the mark. They went way beyond the mark. So we want to stay with truth and not tradition. That means we have to accept continuing revelation from our prophets and we have to be teachable. We have to be coachable, which that means humble, right? We've talked about this recently. So I just was reminded of a speech. In fact, Chris is the one who mentioned this first. This was an address delivered by Elder Boyd K. Packer at a regional representative seminar back in 1990, March of 1990. So it's a long time ago, back when they had regional representative seminars. And Elder Boyd K. Packer presented a speech called Let Them Govern Themselves. Now, it has lots of good messages, but I'm just going to mention the early message of this speech. And this was at the time where big changes were happening in the way we did our meetings. And we went from having two different meetings on Sunday where people would go to church for Sunday school and then go back home and eat lunch and then come back for a sacrament meeting in the later afternoon or evening. And then they changed it to a consolidated schedule, and that was actually probably 10 years before the speech was given that that change happened around that time. But they also made another big change about the finances and the tithes and offerings of the church. Yeah, so I'm mixing that up a little bit. This speech was not given at the time of the consolidated schedule. That had already happened, but this was when they changed the finances of the church And he says here in the speech, recent letters announced the decision to fund the church henceforth from tithes and offerings. Now, that was an enormous change because prior to that, every ward had a budget assessment to take care of the physical facilities, like to take care of the building, to take care of, you know, if we needed a building, there were budget assessments made or contribution assessments made and the local saints would contribute to the new building with either money or labor in the old days or materials in the old days. But usually it was by money at this point, and even the bishop would call you in, and he knew how much tithing you were paying, so we kind of had an idea about your income, and then he would make an assessment for each family. Can you contribute this much for this building or for this temple? So things were done quite differently back then, and there were other things that cost money, the the youth programs, you know, just to take care of the library materials or, you know, the other expenses, the utilities and so on that accrued to every ward building or ward program and the state programs as well. So the budget money was given by the saints in that ward. And we had some interesting experiences with that, even in our the early years of our marriage before they started to change this stuff. 
because different wards handled it differently. Sometimes it was just a cash contribution, but often in order to help defray those individual assessments, the wards and stakes would have activities. Most of the wards, I think, sponsored these things. So they would have like maybe a carnival to raise money for the budget. And when I say carnival, I really mean like a bazaar. I guess I should have said a bazaar. So they would maybe have some activities there, but they would usually have people donate things for the budget. So I remember in one of our Indiana wards, we would have this bazaar every year on the grass by the chapel, and people would come and they would buy, let's say someone was a potter and had made some pots just for the bazaar and donated them, and people would buy those, and that money would go to the ward budget, or quilts that were made by sisters, and they would be there to be sold for the budget. And often they would have like, I know some wards, I don't think we were ever in a ward that did this, but it was like a dime a dip dinner. Actually, we did have budget dinners now that I think about it, where you would come and pay so much for every family member and the food was all donated by ward members. So we would have kind of a ward event, but all the money that people paid to come and eat was donated to the budget. When we were in Oklahoma for Chris's graduate program, (laughs) this was in Norman, Oklahoma, And some of you may know that that is the home of the Oklahoma Sooners. And when we were there, the president of the university actually made sort of a famous remark where he said that someday he hoped that the school program would live up to the reputation of the football team. So they were contenders. And so it was a huge stadium and so on. Anyway, what the church had arranged to do to make money for the church budget was that the ward members went to those football games. After the football game was over and the people had left, they went to the stadium and cleaned up the stadium. So this was a stadium cleanup activity. And the university paid for these services. Of course, they had paid kind of janitorial services before to do it. But the church had somehow made a contact with somebody and they had decided to give the church a chance to do this. And they were really happy with how well the church cleaned that stadium after the football games. So they paid a lot of money to the wards, and we didn't have to make a personal contribution, but we did show up after the football games to clean up that stadium. We were well-equipped. We had scrapers and brooms and all kinds and blowers for the upper deck that people would get up there and blow all the trash down so that it could be swept up and picked up, and it was a big deal. In fact, because the church said we will not clean on Sundays, the Oklahoma Sooners changed their football schedule times because they had had evening games on Saturdays prior to this. And the church said no, because we would end up cleaning past midnight on Saturday night, and we won't do it on the Sabbath day. So the university was so pleased with how the Saints cleaned the stadium that they changed their schedule. So if they had a game on Saturday, it was early enough that it was done well before the evening so that we could come in and clean that stadium. Chris was actually called to be the stadium cleanup chair the second year we were in Oklahoma. And it was a big responsibility because it was such a huge undertaking. And actually, there were two wards in Norman, and both of them came because it was a big job. And this way, there was plenty of money for both ward budget allotments. How's that for detail? But anyway, it was was a big deal to make money. And there was you know, an involvement from the members one way or another, whether they were just writing checks or doing these different projects to make money. So this was a big change then here that President Packer, then Elder Packer, was talking about. And as he talks about that recent decision to fund the church from tithes and offerings, that meant no more budget assessments, no more budget bazaars or dinners or or stadium cleanup things. Actually, the University of Oklahoma is very disappointed by that change because they had to go to other people to find someone to clean that stadium that they didn't think did as good a job. But 
<laughs> I'm sure the members were happy when that changed. We were we were gone by then from Oklahoma. Anyway, as has been mentioned, this is President Packer speaking, Elder Packer at that time. As has been mentioned here two or three times today, other collections, assessments, and fundraising, with a few and perhaps temporary exceptions, are to be discontinued. So no more of those collections, assessments, or fundraising activities. With a few exceptions, perhaps I think they accepted the scouts that we're still allowed to do some fundraising. Anyway, he talks about the reasons behind that. So he's quoting now from President Monson, who was then the prophet of the church, and he's summarizing President Monson's speech and his points about why this change was made. First, the budget allowance program was created to reduce financial burdens on members meaning that we're changing this now so that it doesn't cost money to be a member of the church. It did cost money. You know, we had to pay for things like beyond our tithes and offerings. And they said, now we just want it to be tithes and offerings. You pay a tithing and you pay fast offerings and other offerings as you're able, but no longer will there be a budget assessment or that we have to pay for our own buildings and temples, which is amazing because those were huge costs. But the tithing of the church and the offerings to the church had grown to a point where the church could do this, and they felt like that would really help to reduce financial burdens on members. Next, members should not pay fees or be assessed to participate in church programs. In other words, it shouldn't cost money to be active in the church. To do the church activities should not cost us out of pocket as members. It To fulfill your calling should not cost us money from our personal budgets. Priesthood leaders should reduce and simplify activities wherever possible. Again, this is President Monson. Priesthood leaders should reduce and simplify activities wherever possible. Let me repeat. Actually, he's repeating it for us. Priesthood leaders should reduce and simplify wherever possible. Activities should be planned at little or no cost. They should build testimonies and provide meaningful service to others. Think about our youth activities. For our young men and our young women, activities should be planned at little or no cost, should build testimonies and provide meaningful service to others. And he added, it is the desire that restraint be used in programming youth activities, restraint, and that consistency between young men and young women programs be achieved. Then he quotes from President Hinckley, who was a member of the First Presidency, It should be recognized that this church is not a social club. This is the kingdom of God in the earth. Its purpose is to bring salvation and exaltation to both the living and the dead. These officers and teachers, young men and women, are people of ingenuity who, with faith and prayer, can work out programs costing little in dollars that will yield tremendous dividends in wholesome recreation and faith-building activities. Perhaps we should be less concerned with fun and more with faith. That's President Hinckley. Perhaps we should be less concerned with fun and more with faith. Now, I've spoken about my personal opinions on this subject, but this is where they came from, to be honest, because I remember reading this speech, and it can be found online, and the whole speech is great, where these brethren are trying to teach the leaders that we need to simplify. Church membership should not cost additional funds beyond tithes and offerings. 
And it would even things out, not just between the young men and the young women, but between one ward and another, because the budget is based on sacrament meeting attendance. That's why the clerk goes around and counts who's there in sacrament meeting, because those numbers are submitted. And based on how many people attend sacrament meeting regularly, budget is allotted from the general church funds to each ward and to each stake. So that brings parity, right? It brings an evening out so that you don't have a rich ward over here in this state or this area of the state. And then here's a less wealthy ward or a poor ward over here. And so the activities for the youth are souped up over here and they're really fancy and expensive, but over here it's going to be a lot less. If we were to keep within our budget assessment based on sacrament meeting attendance, then it doesn't matter if we're in a rich ward or a poorer ward. Our activities would be the same because we would keep it to the budget But does that really happen, brothers and sisters? Or do we turn truth into tradition? And because we used to do fancy activities and because the money is available in people's personal budgets, we reach into our pockets. And I realize people are trying to be generous, but they reach into their own pockets and they they pay for something fancy or, or they ask people to contribute. And because there are wealthy people in the area, Some people get more and some people get less if they don't have those wealthy people. So we have to be cautious about those things. And I think that in some ways we we are really susceptible to, as Elder McConkie warned, transforming truth into tradition rather than listening to the messages of our church leaders when they're trying to simplify So I do want to read a little bit more from Elder Packer because this is great, and I know I'm going kind of long today. I hope you'll bear with me. In recent years, we might be compared to a team of doctors issuing prescriptions to cure or immunize our members against spiritual diseases. Each time some moral or spiritual ailment was diagnosed, we have rushed to the pharmacy to concoct another remedy, encapsulate it as a program, and send it out with pages of directions for use. While we all seem to agree that over-medication, over-programming is a critically serious problem. We have failed to reduce the treatments. It has been virtually impossible to affect any reduction in programs. Let me repeat that. This is an apostle of the Lord in the highest leadership councils of this church who is saying it has been virtually impossible to affect any reduction in programs. Now, I don't know if it's in this speech or another speech, but Elder Packer did warn, nothing likes a vacuum. When we try to simplify things, that creates space, and people rush to fill it with more programs or more activities. So be mindful of that, because I think we see that, again, you know, never underestimate the ability of human beings to screw stuff up. Anyway, every time we try, Elder Packer continues, and he's talking about the reduction of programs, advocates cry to high heaven that we are putting the spiritual lives of our youth at risk. If symptoms reappear, we program even heavier doses of interviews, activities, meetings, and assessment. The best answer, perhaps, is to withdraw all prescriptions and start over. Skipping a little, the scriptures were prescribed as the basic nourishment. And think how sometimes we're all over with all these different programs and activities, but are we in the scriptures? And the scriptures are the basic nourishment. That is where the keys to salvation are found. That is where Jesus Christ is found. The testimony of Christ is in these scriptures. 
The curriculum, Elder Packer continues, loaded with spiritual nutrients was developed, but we did not allow time for it to work, and we failed to close the pharmacy or even effectively control it. We now have ourselves in a corner. He says, for instance, we have a reason to be seriously concerned about the lack of reverence in the church. Now, do you even hear anybody talking about that anymore? Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect and I have to catch myself, but there are times I do catch myself and I think, you know, we should move this conversation into the foyer because we're still in the chapel after sacrament meeting and we're just jabbering away with each other. And it's wonderful that we love each other and we want to visit and be acquainted and so on, greet each other and meet new people, but we need to take it out of the chapel. And what are we teaching our children about that sacred space where we should worship the Lord? But we tend to you know, make things a little bit more common and less reverent. Perhaps this one thing, Elder Packer says, general across the world is as much an interference with and a short-circuiting of inspiration as anything that could be pointed to. He's talking about reverence. We are short-circuiting inspiration and revelation by our lack of reverence. That's a scary thought. And then he says, however, I dare not press for the correction of that issue because we do not seem to be able to solve a problem without designing a program with pages of instructions and sending it out again. Okay, it goes on, and I'm not going to read all of this, but just a few lines here and there. The hardest ailment to treat is a virtue carried to the extreme. We cannot seem to learn that too much, even of a good thing, or too many good things, like vitamins taken in overdose, can be harmful. And then this statement that I probably will end with, Elder Packer says, In recent years, I have felt, and I think I am not alone, that we were losing the ability to correct the course of the church. Boy, let that sink in, brothers and sisters. I'm going to read it again. In recent years, I have felt, and I think I am not alone, that we were losing the ability to correct the course of the church. Now, I think you'll recognize that. Too often, we hear messages from our leaders. We do not take them in. We do not follow them. We don't make the changes that they are asking for. And they don't fight with us, so they withdraw the message. I can tell you this as a personal witness. I remember, again, at the time of the consolidation of the schedule, so that we went from having two different meetings on Sunday to just one block, they talked so much about simplifying. They also, as you know, changed from having weekday meetings. There was a night for young men's and young women's. There was an afternoon for primary. There was a homemaking meeting during the week for the Relief Society. And all of that changed to Sunday meetings with a few different activities sometimes during the week. But they tried to simplify and to reduce the burden of time on the members. In order to be active, you didn't have to be gone all the time from your home. You could go less often to the chapel. You could be at home more with your family so that we could study the gospel together, so that we could live the gospel together, so that parents would have time to teach their children. Now, I remember talking to a young single mom, and she had a lot of challenges, and her ex was not helpful in terms of teaching the children. He was kind of wild and crazy at that point. 
and not a good influence. So it was a very challenging situation, but she had her kids in all kinds of activities and they were talented or interested kids. So, you know, athletics were, you know, playing a big part in terms of these weekday activities after school and in the evenings. And I think she had some kids in dance or music and anyway, other activities like that. So she was basically on the road after school every day. And I remember asking her because she was concerned about some of her kids' behavior and we were talking about ways that she could help to change the behavior of her children with good parenting. And basically she was like, but I don't know when I would do it. And I'm like, well, so what are you doing? And she told me about all these weekday activities. And I'm like, well, when do you talk to your kids about the gospel of Jesus Christ? When do you try to teach them good principles? When do you have time together to have wholesome fun and recreation, but also time to, to share and witness of the truthfulness of the gospel and to be happy as a family? And she didn't have much of an answer. How sad is that? Our prophets have been telling us for a long time to, to simplify. We're in a very, very complex and busy world. There are too many good things. We do get caught in the thick of thin things. And as we have been warned against, too often we put the things that matter most at the mercy of things that matter less. And we are so caught up in that thick of thin things that we that we don't get the blessings that God wants to give us by telling us things like simplifying and by reducing the costs on the members. So one example, and then I will let you go. Oh my goodness, it's long today. I was talking with a stake young women's president a long time ago. We were kind of new in the area and their stake was doing a trek. And actually we were in that stake. And so we had a couple of kids that were of the age to go on trek. And since we were new, and I had kind of met this stake young women's president at some meeting or whatever, and she asked about kids, and did we have any going on trek? And I may have told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again, because it's such a good example, a sad, but good example of, of what I'm talking about. I said, yes, we had a couple of kids going. And she said, oh, well, that's great. We have such great treks. You know, they're going to have a wonderful experience. And I already had gotten the instructions, you know, of course, from our own ward leaders about what our kids needed to take on trek. And this was after we had moved from Las Vegas. And in Las Vegas, we'd had some older kids go on trek. And honestly, they kept it really simple. They had really followed the admonition to simplify. So they let the kids wear jeans, which actually are even contemporary to the pioneers because Levi Strauss was in that era, right? But they could wear jeans, which every kid had. So they didn't have to go out and buy clothes. They just had to have long sleeve shirts so they could protect their arms against the sun and to have a hat. But any kind of hat was acceptable. Now, they did encourage that you had a kind of hat or a scarf to cover the tops of your ears. I mean, remember, this is Las Vegas. The sun's pretty <laughs> powerful over there. And so they didn't want the kids to get the tops of their ears burned or the back of their neck. But, you know, they could bring a bandana or they could, you know, bring a hat with a rim around it, a brim, so that they could be protected. It, but any kind of thing that met that criteria was sufficient. And, and they didn't require that they go and buy any clothes. Everybody had those items available to them. So here we were now in this new place, and they wanted the kids to wear cotton pants. So, you know, good idea was to go to Desert Industries and see if you could buy, you know, some kind of thrift store, you could get cotton pants, because your kids were never going to wear them again. They all wore Levi's or shorts in the summer. So anyway, you know, now you have to go and buy clothes. That you're, even if you buy them at a thrift store, you're, you're never going to wear them again. So you're just going to give them back. And that's an expenditure. And the girls had to have skirts. Long skirts, like pioneer skirts. So you had to either make them or buy them. Again, it was a needless expense. 
And there were other things along that line. And we actually had somebody in our ward, a couple in our ward who were going to be a monopa, and he had to take time off work. So it was sort of an unpaid leave, or he was using his vacation time, both of which would have been costly to the family. And they had to buy all this other equipment that they didn't have, and they had tried to borrow anything they could, but they also had a couple of kids going on trek. And so I remember talking to this sister, and she said that it was costing them a lot of money. And they were on, you know, a a modest budget. So she said it was kind of a hardship. They didn't realize how much it was going to cost them to be a mom and a pot in addition to the time they were sacrificing and all the other effort. So anyway, I was speaking to this stake young women's president. I did not know her well, but I did bring that up. And I said, um, sister, so-and-so, I'm, I was just wondering though, I said, because, you know, the church has been talking so much about simplifying and not doing activities that cost very much. And I said, wouldn't it be easier to just let the kids wear Levi's and, you know, clothes that they already have? I mean, it seems like this is an unnecessary expense for for some families that may have a harder time. And anyway, (laughs) we had a little bit of a chit-chat about it. And I didn't mean to be too obnoxious or I wasn't trying to be critical. But, you know, something came up in the conversation where this was not too big a reach to go to this question. And this sister... And I must give her credit. She didn't get really defensive or anything, but she did say, oh, we've always done it this way. Now, those are deadly words, brothers and sisters. We've always done it this way. That is totally falling into transforming truth into traditions. We've always done it this way. Well, I guarantee you they didn't do that back in pioneer days. (laughs) They didn't go out and buy special clothes that they were never going to wear again. Anyway, but so this was a tradition in this area for some time. And then she talked about some great things that had come out of Trek, like there had been a kid who wasn't going to go on a mission, but he goes on a Trek and he got converted to going on a mission. And that was so wonderful. And then another kid who wasn't active, but got talked into going on Trek. And then, you know, they had a testimony meeting. This kid was really touched. And so he became active or whatever. So she had a few stories like that. And I was not going to argue with her. So I just let it drop. And I said, well, you know, that's really nice. But I went home. And when my kids were home from school that day, (laughs) we sat down and I said, let me tell you about this conversation. And I told them what had happened. And then I said, she's acting like the blessings that have come to track participants come because of their disobedience to the admonitions of the prophets. Because they are not simplifying, she's saying they've had these blessings. That is twisted up. That is really twisted. You know what's happening here? I said it's because God is generous that in spite of the disobedience, he is willing to touch anybody with the spirit who is receptive to the spirit. So if those young people are on that track, and in spite of the fact that it is not following the church leader's admonitions to simplify, they are receptive to the spirit that God is going to send the spirit anyway. And it happens in spite of the leader's disobedience, not because of it. Huge difference. Enormous difference. Brothers and sisters, we don't get blessings for disobeying. We get blessings for obeying, for being teachable and humble and changeable and being willing to have our course corrected by the prophets, by the scriptures. So I'm back to section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is so important for us to understand. This is verse, where is it? Verse 30 of section 58 in the DNC. Who am I? Saith the Lord. It's verse 31. I apologize. Verse 31. Who am I, saith the Lord, that have promised and have not fulfilled? He is a promise keeper. He is an oath keeper. 
He never makes a promise that he does not fulfill. Next verse, 32. I command and men obey not. Does that sound like anybody you know? <laughs> we can all fall into that trap. I command and men obey not. I revoke and they receive not the blessing. Now, why does he revoke? Does that mean he changes and the rule doesn't count anymore? The commandment is now void? No. The principles of the gospel will never change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There may be some style changes, some policy adaptations for the time or the situation, but the principles of the gospel are everlasting. I command and men obey not. I revoke. Why? Because he is not a God of contention. That is Satan's way. God will not contend, not even with his own people. So he comes down with Moses. Well, Moses comes down from Sinai with the higher law. They could have become a Zion people right then and there as they went into the land of Canaan that was promised to them. And they rejected it. So did God insist? No, he never does that. He revokes and then they receive not the blessing. Those should be chilling words, brothers and sisters. And then they say in their hearts, this is verse 33, this is not the work of the Lord for his promises are not fulfilled. But woe unto such. For their reward lurketh, what a word, lurketh beneath and not from above. So look what he's saying. He's saying, and what is President Packer saying, or Elder Packer at this time, saying, he is saying, we have tried to correct the course of the church. We have tried to get you to simplify. We have tried to get you to stop spending so much money. But use only the budget allowances and do more faith, not fun activities with our youth. Simplify. Get in the scriptures and give families time. Don't have so much over-programming. And don't, I mean, you know, I knew a sister and she, bless her heart. I was so impressed with this. She was called to be the young women's president in her ward. And she said, you know what, we are giving people back their time in the evening. So we are going to begin right at this time. And I think it was like seven o'clock. We we're going to begin at seven o'clock. And I've told my, my leadership, my presidency and all the leaders there that if it takes you longer than 10 or 15 minutes to set up that activity. Don't do it. I don't want you to come here an hour before. You have families too. You come just a few minutes before, set up if you need to, or you can come right on time, just a few minutes before to be here when the kids come. And we are walking out of the building at eight o'clock. She said, I'll give us five minutes extra to just close up, turn off the lights and so on. But we're walking out just five minutes after the kids leave. And if the activity can't be finished by eight o'clock, we're not going to do it. You have to break it up into different parts or scrap it because we are not going to take time from our families. We'll do an activity and we'll keep them faith-based. And there'll be some fun too, but it will be brief and we will mostly be about service and faith. And what a blessing to those ward members, to those ward families. I was so impressed. I have never heard of anybody else doing that. Why is that so hard? I remember when our kids were going to the program, that it's kind of like, why are they having youth activities on finals week or midterms? The kids have all this study to do. Couldn't they like think about the families and say like, you know what? We don't need to have an activity this week. I mean, it's kind of like, what are we thinking? Why do we think that another program is going to make it when our prophets have said we're over-programmed? We need to simplify, give more time to families to live and learn the gospel at home. And then look at the promises that are given. He talked about how this would strengthen the youth. Now, brothers and sisters, are our youth being strengthened? There are some, and I have met some. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's so delightful to meet some of the youth of the church who have testimonies and they want so 
clearly to be obedient. They are willing to hear the Lord and to be taught by the Lord and to be converted to his gospel and to live and walk a covenant path. It is so wonderful, but we are losing a lot of them too. In fact, in some respects, they're dropping like flies. I talk to my own children. They're high school friends. So many of them have left the church. Mission buddies have left the church. Brothers and sisters, we are in a problem. And look what he says. He says, I command and men obey not. I revoke and they receive not the blessing. Then they say in their hearts, this is not the work of the Lord for his promises are not fulfilled. Where is the blessing for our youth? Where are the blessings for our families? But woe unto such for their reward lurketh beneath and not from above. Now we understand agency. Kids can sometimes make choices that are different from what they have been taught. But are we looking to see if we have ignored the admonitions of the prophets? Have we simplified? Have we not turned truth into tradition that then we act like this is where salvation is, in these traditions rather than in the Lord? Well, brothers and sisters, this was a very long podcast. I am sorry. (laughs) Got carried away. I hope this makes sense. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. We can follow the word of the Lord through his prophets. And if we do so, the Lord will keep his promises. He is a promise keeper. We can become his Zion people. We can choose glory. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.